Good morning. I want you today to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll also be in Matthew 24, but just briefly. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is our main passage today, but we'll also be in Matthew 24. 2 Thessalonians 2. Let me put a graphic up on the screen behind me. So if you're not familiar with where the book of 2 Thessalonians is, is located, I've got some instructions on the screen behind me. Uh, so you can kind of navigate and locate where that book of the Bible is located. Um, also, if you've got the Bible app downloaded on any of your devices that you've got with you, we're in the Bible app. And so you can follow the directions on the screen to locate us there. Uh, but you, I will say this, when you get to the place where uh, it lists the location, locations, uh, you do need to go into the map part and click on the pin for our church. Uh, it, for one reason or another, our church doesn't pop up in the list, uh, but feel free to do that. Now, uh, today we are concluding our series in the book of Revelation. We've been in this book for several months. As a matter of fact, most of this calendar year we've been in this book. And I've enjoyed it. You know, I've gotten to geek out on you several times and uh, open up some passages and talk about some things that uh, are kind of hard to understand. Uh, And last week, we kind of finished up the chapters of Revelation. And today, I wanted to bring all of that together. Because if you remember, if you've been listening to this series, I've not been talking about what Revelation predicts. I've been talking a lot about how Revelation, when we sit down and read it, we should not read it with our newspaper open next to us, but we should have our Old Testament open to us. Because John, in the book of Revelation alone, makes over 400 Old Testament references. And you cannot understand the book of Revelation unless you're looking at the Old Testament references that he's pointing at. I've used the illustration throughout this series that if you were to open up the Sunday newspaper, you're going to open up the front page and you're going to read stories, uh, journalistic uh, accounts of things that have happened locally and around the world. You're going to go to the sports section and read about uh, the latest games and uh, who won this game and that game and what happened here and there in the sports world. You can go to the classified and classified section and and read uh, about different job postings and things for sale. But my favorite part of the newspaper is the comics. And Revelation is a kind of like the comics section of the newspaper. It's not a simple accounting of things that have or will happen. It gives us word pictures. Now, I've made the argument when you open up and you read this section of the newspaper, it's not any less truthful, is it? No, as a matter of fact, sometimes this section of the newspaper is a little more honest and addresses some topics that the rest of the sections won't cover, and they do it in a way graphically and with pictures and cartoons that kind of puts us at ease, right? Revelation is similar similar to this, almost everything, notice I said almost, almost everything in the book of Revelation is a word picture or a symbol or an Old Testament reference. And we've spent the last few months unpacking that imagery and the symbolism and, and all the things that the book of Revelation addresses. 
So, how do we wrap this up? Well, we cannot interpret Revelation without the Old Testament, but we also cannot interpret Revelation without the other passages in the New Testament that talk about what's going to happen in the end times. I will tell you that there are two main ones. Now, there are lots of, Old Test- or lots of New Testament discussions about what happens in the end times, but there's two that are kind of the shining examples, the big ones, and that's Matthew 24 and the 2 Thessalonians 2. That's why I asked you to turn uh, to those uh, chapters in your Bibles today. Now, before I open up to Matthew 24, let me just say this. I challenge you, and many of you, we've had this discussion. I challenge you to take the ideas that you've kind of grown up with and push against some of those. Uh, and, and let me just call out what I'm talking about. Uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s, this guy named Tim LaHaye came out with a book series called Left Behind. Uh, and, and don't get me wrong, the, those books are, are great books and, and very entertaining, but they are fiction. And Tim LaHaye never designed them to teach biblical theology. But we have read them as if they are biblical theology. And those books, that series, has kind of skewed how we as Americans view Revelation and end times passages in the Bible um, and, and kind of has steered us in a weird direction, to be honest. There are things in those books that are not found anywhere in this book. They're completely fictional because it's a fictional book series. So, I want us to reevaluate what we should think about the end times since we finished with the book of Revelation. So take your Bibles, if you can, turn to Matthew 24. We're going to come to 2 Thessalonians 2 here in just a moment. But if you can find uh, Matthew 24 quickly, turn there. While you're turning there, Matthew 24, let me tell you what's happening here. Jesus has just walked through the city of Jerusalem, and he has just made this mournful statement about how he's sad about the state of Jerusalem and what the future for Jerusalem is going to be. And his disciples come to him and they're like, Jesus, can you tell us what things are going to be like in the end times? Like, what's going to happen? What do we need to look for? And look at what he says starting in verse 9 of Matthew 24. He's talked about wars, rumors of wars, natural disasters. He goes, these are the the signs, the growing pains that the earth, or the birth pains that the earth is going to demonstrate to us. And then he says this in verse 9. He says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let me repeat that verse 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So what has Jesus said? He has said there's going to be all sorts of groanings that the earth's going to make. There's going to be natural disasters, earthquakes, all this kind of stuff. Those are the beginning signs. 
And then he starts talking about persecution. And this is something that we as Americans need to wrap our minds around. I talk about this often. Your life as a follower of Christ was never, has never been guaranteed to be safe or easy or comfortable. As a matter of fact, Jesus guarantees that the followers of Jesus will be persecuted. They're going to hate the followers of Jesus because they hated Jesus. People don't want the truth. I mean, look at the social media world around us, right? How much truth is online? Not a lot. Not these days. Don't believe everything you read. <laughs> but, but the world does not want the truth. They don't want to face the fact that sin is a part of their existence and that sin has led them to eternal death and punishment they don't want to face the fact that they need to be saved from their sin. And so, truth and the following of Jesus will become very difficult or is very difficult. The fact of the matter is, is if you leave the United States, the vast majority of countries in this world are not all that favorable towards Christians. Uh, you go to India where in parts of India, churches right now are being burned to the ground. People are, the many in the in, nation of India are actively pursuing and persecuting Christians, taking them out in the street and beating them. In China, if you go to China and you proclaim the gospel, there's a very high likelihood that you will just disappear because the government has no desire to see the gospel spread because it's contrary to what they want to do as a government. And this, these kinds of stories are found all over the world, even in what we would consider free countries. You go to parts of Mexico and South America, for example, and you will be persecuted because of the cartels. The cartels don't want hope and peace in the world that they have. They want subjugation. And they want people to cower before them and serve them because they want money and power. If you're a follower of Jesus here in America, we live a pretty comfortable life. But we are the exception to that rule. The reality is, is most people who claim to follow Christ, who are followers of Jesus around the world, they live very hard lives because of their faith. And so Jesus guarantees here that in the end times, if we are followers of Jesus, we will be persecuted. The persecution will increase. It won't decrease. But I want you to notice one thing. Look with me in verse 14. It says, and this gospel. Gospel is a Greek word that basically means good news. So this good news of the kingdom. So basically Jesus is saying the good news of Jesus Christ is what he's saying. The gospel of this kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I don't know how to say this, so I'm just going to say it. I hear people all the time say we're in the end times. And I see in the world around us that there are horrible things going on. There are people being persecuted. Don't get me wrong. This world's not a not a, not a God-glorifying place, like, like things aren't great. But 
there is one prophecy that tells us the timing of the end times. One. And it's this one right here from Jesus' own mouth. Jesus himself said that I will not come back until all nations have heard my name. So how many nations, how many people groups? If you look up the Greek here, the whole world is the word ethnos. And the Greek understanding of ethnos was every people group, not every nation, but every people group, every tribe. So how many tribes are there in the world? Well, according to current statistics, there are over 17,000 people groups in the world today. Okay, you with me so far? 17,000. Of those 17,000, at least, and this is a conservative number, of the 17,000 people groups in the world, at least 6,700 have no access to the gospel. So has the, world, has the gospel been preached to all people groups yet? We're not even close. There are 8 billion people in the world today. Of those 8 billion people, 3.1 billion have never heard the name Jesus in their entire life. 3.1. That is 40% of the world that has never heard the name of Jesus. Guys, I hate to burst your bubble. We're nowhere near the end times. Because the one and only prophecy that Jesus himself said about when the end times would happen isn't even close to being fulfilled yet. We're nowhere near spreading the gospel to all people groups. Is the world a good place? No, I get it. But if you know anything about history, the world has never been a good place. As a matter of fact, the world we live in today is a way better place than it was in 580 AD. The world is a way better place than it was in the 15-1600s when the bubonic plague was spreading around the world. The fact of the matter is, is if we want Jesus to come back, we got to be sending missionaries. There are entire people groups who have literally, if you walked into this village of one of these people groups and you started speaking about this guy named Jesus, they would have no clue who you were talking about. That's why we, that's one of the biggest reasons why we are a Southern Baptist church. The Southern Baptist Convention sends more missionaries around the world than any organization in the United States. Our, one of our missions is that every person hears the gospel. Every person hears the good news of Jesus. And we should be huge supporters of that. If for no other reason, for this right here. People need to hear about Jesus. We need to make that a number one priority. Let me give you just one more idea of how crazy this is. For context, worldwide, there are about 300,000 Muslims for every one Christian. Or every Christian worker, so missionary sent out. So we send missionaries to countries where there are Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and all, all sorts of religions. Muslims alone, for every 300,000 Muslims, there's only one Muslim missionary, one Christian missionary reaching Muslim people groups. 
That means that there are over 13% of Muslims in the world, only 13% even knows a Christian or has interacted with a Christian. There are that, that, that means that there are 87% of the Muslims in this world have never interacted with a Christian. That's crazy. In a United States where we're surrounded by Christianity constantly, there are countries that are the polar opposite from us with people who have literally never heard Jesus' name, never heard that the God of the universe loves them and died on a cross to save them from their sins and rose from the grave declaring his defeat of sin and death because he's the son of God. They've never heard that. And we as the followers of Jesus are called to be the ones to take it to them. So we've got a lot of work to do. Now I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Thessalonians 2. So Paul is the guy who wrote 2 Thessalonians. Um, he, he talks a lot about what's going on in the world and he gives lots of instruction. But then here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he, he kind of takes this side conversation about the end times and some things that are going to happen there. So look with me in 2 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 1. It says this, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So basically, verses 1 through 2, Paul's saying, guys, don't get upset if somebody tells you that the Lord's already come. That's a lie. Verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and you know that this is that you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way verse 8 and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill, will take with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all the power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Sounds a lot like Revelation, right? So Paul talks about this lawless one. If you uh, compare 2 Thessalonians 2 with Revelation, he's more than likely talking about the beast that we saw in the second half of the book of Revelation, the beast that comes from the sea. Uh, if you weren't with us for that sermon, uh, there will be something that comes up, a, a power, either a person or a government, that will demand people's worship. And there will be a second entity that will come up and it will direct people to worship that thing, whether it be a person or government. And when they start worshiping, that's when they'll take on the mark of the beast and things will get really difficult for those who won't take the mark, those who follow Jesus. So 
Paul is making that same reference more than likely here in 2 Thessalonians 2. So there's an alignment with what Paul says with what John's going to say later in the book of Revelation. So a lot of similarities here. But how do we unpack this? Well, before we unpack it, I want to give you my big idea because all of this sounds really crazy. And if you're a guest with us, I apologize for that because that's Revelation. It's a, it's a strange, crazy, wild, symbolic book, but it's got so much beauty and truth in it. And throughout this series, I've been giving big ideas like hope in God, follow God, believe in God. And today is a very similar uh, a big idea, and it's simply this, trust God. Let me, let me tell you why I'm giving you this big idea, because this is the exact same idea that I gave four weeks ago. So why am I repeating it? I'm repeating it simply because these passages point us to trust Him. He's got a plan. What does Revelation and 2 Thessalonians and Matthew 24 all demonstrate to us? God's already got the future worked out. It's not that he knows what's going to happen. He's orchestrating what's going to happen to, to an extent. God has a plan. And if God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, he is the God that's described in the Bible, then he is more than capable of executing that plan. And that plan is to destroy all sin and death and destruction and evil, leaving only the purity of Jesus in truth. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a part of that hope, that redemption, that saving from evil and sin and death and destruction. And let me just say this, if, if you're here today and you've never come to a place where you've become a believer in Jesus... And you're like, okay, first off, a lot of this sounds weird, but I do have questions about what you're talking about, about uh, being redeemed from death and destruction and sin and all those things. I want to know more or I want to make a decision. I, I want you to respond if you're here and you've never become a believer of Jesus, but you've got questions or, or you want to take your next step in your journey with Jesus. Uh, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to fill a connect card out. Uh, go to the contact us page of our website or, or come see me after service. I'll be in the foyer. I would love to talk to you and answer any questions you may have about following Jesus and what that looks like and answer any questions that you may have. But please hear me. If you're not a follower of Jesus, there's hope in trusting God. He loves you. He died on a cross to rescue you, to save you, from your sins and the consequences of your sins. And he wants you to follow him. And I would love to talk to you about that if you uh, want to know more, if you've got questions. So please, today, don't leave without asking the questions that you may have about this. So God's got a plan. He's all-powerful. That plan is going to happen. And that plan is for the good of those who follow Jesus. So trust God. Now, in light of that, in knowing that Revelation is a book of hope that points us to trusting God, to following God, that God's got us in His very capable hands, 
How do we interpret all the imagery and the timeline and all that kind of stuff? Well, let me give you a graphic. There are four ways that you can interpret the book of Revelation. There's what's called preterist, historical, idealist, and futurist. Now, let me just briefly explain these four. When you sit down and you read the book of Revelation, you can either read what it's saying and approach it from what's called a preterist point of view. Now, preterist means that you look at Revelation and you say all that happens, all that's discussed in Revelation happened before 100 AD. It's already been done. Everything in Revelation is hundreds of years past. And there are ways that you could kind of get to this, but let me tell you right now, of the th- four views that are up here, this is the one and only view that I don't think is biblical. Because there's so much more to Revelation than just looking at it from a past perspective. There are many things in Revelation that mirror what happened in the past, but there's a lot in Revelation that does not. So I don't think preterist is a biblical way to interpret Revelation. So the next one is historical. Uh, The historical point of view says, okay, Revelation is relevant to every time frame throughout history. So from the moment it was written, it applied to those people. And 50 years later, it applied to those people too. And 100 years after that, it applied to those people. And it applies to us right now. And if God doesn't come during this lifetime, it'll apply to the next generation. So historical says it just applies to every generation throughout all of time. And I'll be honest, you can biblically, that's a very biblical way to look at Revelation. The next one is idealist, and that's what I've been kind of unpacking for you throughout this series. Idealist is this idea that Revelation is a book full of symbols and imagery and things like that, and you want to unpack those symbols and those images and those Old Testament references and just try to find God's truth for you in the now. It's a little different than the historical in that its emphasis is on all the symbolism and imagery. Again, I think there's, this is another great way biblically that you can look at the book of Revelation. The last one is futurist. And let me say, this is probably 99% of us in this room lean futurists. And that is that you look at, read Revelation, and you think some of it applies now, but most of it is for the future. It's a prophecy about what's going to happen in the end times. I think the futurist is probably the most biblical of the three options up here other than preterist. I don't think preterist is biblical, but idealist, historic, and futurist Uh, They're all biblical ways to interpret Revelation. I think futurist is the most biblical. But hear me clearly, here at this church, I'm very comfortable with the last three other than preterists. You could be at this church and believe in any of those three, you're going to be very comfortable here. You can be a preterist. I don't have a problem with it. I'm just going to agree to disagree with you. So these are the four main ways that people interpret the book of Revelation. And within the futurist interpretation, again, the vast majority in this room, if not every person in this room, probably interprets Revelation from a futurist viewpoint. Most of those, they, they, that's when you start getting into the millennium and the great tribulation and all those kinds of things. Um, and, and so let me unpack that for just a moment because most of you in this room who have studied Revelation from a futurist viewpoint 
are going, okay, now when does the millennium happen and what about this? Well, let me very briefly unpack that for us. There's only one passage in all of Scripture that talks about the millennium, and that's Revelation 20. So Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3 says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient servant, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, a millennium, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So how do we interpret this one mention of this thousand years? Well, first off, remember one thing. Every number up to this point in the book of Revelation has been a symbolic number, right? It has pointed to a greater truth, and it's more than likely not supposed to be interpreted as a literal number. Some people do, and don't get me wrong, that's fine. I don't think that that's a truly biblical way to interpret Revelation if, again, as I've been pointing out over and over and over, if you're going back to the Old Testament references, it's very clear that the vast majority, if not all the numbers in Revelation, are not supposed to be understood literally. They're supposed to be understood from a symbolic point of view. So I'll tell you right now, I don't think the millennium is a literal thousand years. I think it's just telling us that it's a large amount of time. It's generations upon generations upon generations, but it may not be an exact 1,000 years. Now, there are three views when it comes to interpreting Revelation 21 through 3. And here's the hard part. Please hear me on this. There's not a lot of information. There are three verses, and that's all we've got. So, please understand that there are multiple ways to look at this, and all of those ways are biblical. So, the first way, you've probably heard of this, is post-millennial. This belief says that Jesus will not return until the the church has finished its job of spreading the gospel. So, basically... There will be a thousand years, and then Jesus will come back and take us. The, 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 the tribulation, the rapture that is a good church word, where Jesus comes and takes us all, that comes from Jesus' sayings in Matthew 24 and 25 and other passages. The, another view uh, is amillennialism. Amillennialism teaches that the millennium is now. That once the church was established, the millennium began. You say, well, in Revelation 20, it talks about Satan being chained and thrown in a pit, and he's uh, withheld, his powers held back. And people who uh, believe in amillennialism, uh, amillennialism would say, well, Satan's power is withheld, but it's not completely stopped, and it's held back enough that people can spread the gospel. And so we live in the millennium right now in the church age. Lastly, premillennialism. This is where left behind comes into play. Premillennialism has become very popular over the last like 70 or 80 years, um, but it has historically not been the predominant view of the church. It's only been popular for a, around a century. But premillennium is the idea that Jesus will come and take his followers, and then the thousand years will begin. Again, guys, 
all three of these you can defend biblically. There's no right or wrong answer here. We've only got three verses to figure this out. And God only gave us three verses on purpose. There's supposed to be a little mystery to it. There are some elements of this that we're simply not supposed to understand or have conclusive answers on. So all these views are biblical. They can be viewed in that way. But I did want to unpack briefly for you this morning the different ways to do this because I've had a ton of you come to me and say, when are we going to talk about the millennial and how to interpret Revelation? When are you going to get to that? I got to it. There you go. If you want more, go look it up or come talk to me. I'll, I'll talk to you about it. So the big idea today, though, is trust God. And no matter how you interpret the book of Revelation, we can hope in what God does and says. We can believe in Him, we can follow Him, and we can trust Him. That's the point of Revelation. It doesn't matter whether you're a, a preterist or historical or idealist or futurist, or you believe in amillennialism or premillennialism or postmillennialism. The point of Revelation is to point us to trusting God. That's the point. You don't have to have a for sure answer to how Revelation should be interpreted. You don't have to have a stance on Revelation that's set in stone. Just trust God. That's the point. Now I'm going to jump off of Revelation for just a minute because there's one other thing that I want to make sure to communicate with you before we finish this series. I have over and over, every single Sunday through this entire series, pointed you back to the Old Testament because John does that. There's not a section of Revelation where John doesn't point back to at least a dozen Old Testament passages. And that also is one way that we can have, we can know that we can trust God. Put that graphic up on the screen of the cross-references, the back-and-forths. So, look at this graphic for a moment. It's not a rainbow. It's actually every... I don't know if you can see it from where you're sitting. Put, get, grab your binoculars and hone in. But at the very bottom, there are these white lines that are vertical. That is every chapter of the Bible. And the big arches that are going back and forth... Those are the places where the Bible points back and forth throughout itself. Put that second graphic, that closer graphic up. So if you were to hone in super close, you would see 67,000 cross-references in the Bible. Back at the end of the summer and beginning of the fall, we did a series called How to Read Your Bible. And I talked about how this book right here is not a book, it's a library. If you were to print this book, if you open your Bible, it's printed on tissue paper, the thinnest paper that you can print on. Because if you were to print this book on actual paper that is used in regular books, it would be a book series about this wide. I have one sitting in my office. This is a library that was written by over 40 authors on three continents over a period of over 1,500 years. Go back to that original graphic, Joy. 
67,000 cross-references to itself, multiple authors over a 1,500-year period, and every single one of those cross-references agrees with one another, and there's never a conflict within it. There is not a single document in all of history, even documents from Greek philosophy that reference back to other philosophers There's no document on the face of the planet in all of history that we know of that cross-references itself like this and is never in disagreement with itself. God used over 40 people over 1,500 years located on three different continents and made a perfectly synchronized, agreed-to book library for our direction, for our knowledge, for our growth, but most of all, for our salvation. I'm a geek all day long. If you've been in this series at all, you know that I geek out on all sorts of things. This makes me trust God so much more because there is no explanation for a library like this being in agreement the way it is. There is no explanation for how this could happen except that there's actually just one author who is the God of the universe and directed the writing of that through 40 men on three continents over 1,500 years. Trust God. Revelation points us to trusting Him. This library points us to trusting Him. Please hear me. If you didn't get all of this series, if you've been confused by this series, if you've disagreed with me through this series, great. I have no problem with that. Because the point is not to sell you on my point of view or my interpretive viewpoint. The point is to trust God. The point is that this book was written by God through 40 men and leads us to the life-changing hope that can only be found in Jesus. That's why we have it. Interesting little side note. If you read Genesis 3, 1 through 3 and then you read Revelation 19 through 22, they are perfect bookends to the entire library. Genesis 1 through 3 creates the eternal problem of sin. Midway through, Jesus defeats the eternal problem and makes it no longer a problem. And then Revelation 19 through 22 points us to us going back to the perfect creation that God started in Genesis 1. Full, complete redemption for all who would follow Him. So here's my question. If you're not a follower of Jesus, come talk to us because I don't want you to miss out on this redemption. If you are a follower of Jesus, we got work to do, don't we? There are people right next door to you. There are people that you work with. There are family members that you have that don't know Jesus. And they need His redemption. So it's time for us to get to work. It's time for us to spread the gospel, like Matthew 24, 14 says, to all people groups. Join me in prayer.
Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you that over and over and over and over again, you show us that we can trust you. We thank you that you are a trustworthy God. We thank you that you are a loving God. That you care for us right where we're at. You call us to believe in you. And you call us to grow in our connection, our relationship with you. Lord, help us to lead people to that. Help us. Give us the courage. Give us the words to show people your love and your redemption. We thank you so much for who you are. We thank you so much for what you've done, what you're doing, and what you're going to do for those who follow you. Help us to lead people to that life-changing hope in Jesus. We thank you so much, Lord. We thank you for the book of Revelation. We pray that we have grown through this series. And we lift all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.